Hi, everyone. Before we jump into today's episode, I want to give a quick shout out to our awesome sponsors at Zeewee. You know, our furry pals are carnivores, and Zeewee gets that. Their peak prey recipes are spot on with what they would choose in the wild. We're talking real meat, organs, fish, and even green mussels. Zeewee's been all about peak nutrition since 2002. Ethical, sustainable, and packed with only the purest ingredients from New Zealand. If you want your pet munching on what they're biologically designed to thrive on, check out Seaweed. And for 20% off, feel free to put in our discount code, CanonOptima20. What the dog doing? All right, Kim Brophy. I'm just going to say it. A uh, bit of a fanboy. By the end of the dog, season two, episode eight. Not to sound like a stalker, but was a huge deal for me. It was one of those where I started to listen and... Typically, when you attend webinars or you hear podcasts, you take these golden nuggets, you hear a nice language or a word you want to use. But it was one of those podcasts where it dropped a bombshell on me. And I realized that I'm missing a bigger picture in dog training, that I'm looking too myopically to at dogs. And that old saying, train the dog in front of you. And after I started to try to wrap my brain around ethology, I started to realize there's a lot more to that statement. It's not mm. just about training the dog in front of you, but it's about training generations of that mm. dog, lineage of that dog. And so I just wanted to have you on the podcast and have a conversation around what you do and how you started and uh, just hear more about ethology's take on dog training and behavior modification. Oh, that's awesome. And thank you for sharing that. I'm a uh massive nerd and absolutely love geeking out on dogs. And frankly, I did it just on my own for so long and the industry wasn't really ready for ethology. Like I've been talking about it for a few decades where people were like, well, no, that doesn't matter. Quit talking, stop talking, just train the dog. Why are you talking about that? And then there was something about COVID and everything. I And maybe just timing otherwise too, where people seemed receptive and ready for it. And it's so exciting to me because I could just talk about ethology all day and to be able to share it with other professionals and have that be another lens that we can use in our work. It has just been amazing. And I'm learning so much from all the people that have come on board and shared their enthusiasm and their experiences and everything that they've learned too. So it's become this really cool collective corner that's happening in the dog training world. That's fantastic. I think you hit the nail on the head there. I think we all got grounded and we all got locked away and we all started digesting information and probably out of sheer boredom, we went a little too hard. And I think mm -hmm. it helped us reconnect. I think everybody got a certification while they were on during a pandemic. Yeah. So with that said, in, in terms of a dog owner or a dog trainer listening, can you just give us a quick flyby on what ethology is in terms of what you do in dog training? Yeah, sure. So ethology as a kind of strict discipline is the study of animal behavior in their natural environment from a biological or evolutionary perspective. So when we're talking about dogs, immediately it's because it's like they're not their natural environment and that changes things. And that's why there's the field of applied ethology, which is like more specifically what I am and what I'm studying, but using the lens of ethology to understand what happens for captive animals and domesticated animals. That's what the field is about. That's what that applied component is referring to is for animals who are no longer in their captive environment, whether they're in zoos or on farms, in our homes, in laboratories, things like that, recognizing that when we take an animal out of their evolutionary niche from which they evolved, and then we are artificially selecting them and then keeping them 
in conditions that aren't necessarily unpleasant, but aren't also necessarily the nail on the head from an ecological perspective in terms of what they evolved to be suited to, what kind of conditions they really are meant to be like a key to a lock-in. And with all of our artificial selection, we humans historically have really also changed what that looks like because we needed dogs for really particular functions throughout history. And now pretty much we consider all the really amazing, valuable things that dogs did historically behavior problems, which is really a human perspective issue and a human expectation issue and even a human dog breeding issue. But it's not a, quote, behavior problem, right? Like it's not like the dog's just untrained. So that's where I'm really trying to bring attention to this really critical lens because it's how we can understand any animal's behavior from that evolutionary and natural perspective. And even though they are captive and domesticated, all the same principles still apply to dogs too. So it's important we learn it. That's fantastic. And so what gravitated you towards both ethology and the science and also dogs? How did those two stars align? Dogs were just always baked into the cookie of me. Don't know why, but as a kid growing up in a major city, like in the 70s and 80s, um, Atlanta, all the dogs were still loose and roaming the streets. And I was a nature kid anyway, but being in a major city, I didn't have a whole lot of things that I had access to. Might be down in the creek catching crawdads and salamanders and stuff like that. But then the dogs were in my house, at my feet, available for me to connect with, study, observe, befriend, whatever, and then out in the neighborhood. So as a little kid, I could go sit in my front yard and there'd be a boatload of rotating dogs that were just up and down the street, in and out of the yard, whatever. And so I think that was a little bit accidental as just someone who was really interested in nature. And then I think that's why maybe I, when I did go into the dog world, my degree being in the applied relationship between human and animal behavior, at the time, the field of behavior consulting wasn't even a thing. Nobody was talking really about applied ethology. And I wanted to do something that was good for dogs and good for people. And I found out about service and therapy dogs. So that was what I thought I would be doing with my degree. But through the course of all of my studies, the more that I learned about that kind of evolutionary history, the more I studied evolution in general and ethology in general, I was just hooked because it's that kind of, um, it's almost got like a spiritual component to it to the, to the extent that you're studying the wonder of nature and all of these just phenomenal natural processes that are so humbling and so phenomenal and you know, here we think, oh, we're humans, we're better than every other species, and we can just manipulate and dominate them and use them however we want. And sure, we can, and we do, but we're also a blip on the screen in the timeline, right? So that'll get checked eventually by nature. We'll probably get bucked off as a species at some point. But in the meantime, like our human ego drives so much of what we do, including for sure, as being in this field, what we do with dogs. And to me, that's one of the saddest things about our beautiful historical love story with dogs is that we've offended them in a way, in many ways, as a species, whether it's by not understanding them and then them ending up in shelters and being euthanized because we didn't know what we were getting in the first place. And we had some really unrealistic idea in our mind about what that dog would be like in our life as an accessory or something that like makes our life more fun and more interesting and whatever but not really thinking about them as sentient beings that have needs like any other animals. I'd like to see what I'd really like to be able to walk away from the industry in my old years and see that I feel like I was able to contribute 
was shifting our focus from obedience to welfare, you know, and from compliance to cohesion, where we're really connected in a natural way that works for them as well as us, as opposed to a one-sided exchange, which sadly, I think is often the case when it comes to dog training. It's whatever the human wants. That's a big concept. And I think oftentimes as humans, when we think about influencing dogs or fixing our behavioral issues with dogs, the first thing we go to is obedience. First thing we learn to teach a dog, you're the very three, first 72 hours of getting them are tricks. So when you say cohesion and being, what does that look like for you in terms of a household and the steps that someone would take to march towards that? So I think it starts even before the dog comes into our life. So I think it starts with culturally appreciating the incredible, critical role of the relationship between an organism and their environment. So just small side note, for any species in nature, the specific details of the environment, those conditions and their niche, their role within that environment, what the pressures and opportunities are, right? What the ecology is like, what the climate is like, et cetera. All of those things literally shape what that species became in the first place. And so then as it's born, as a product of that environment, it's born prepared for and well-suited to that environment right? It's designed for it, just key to a lock, right? That idea of a niche. And so when we're talking about getting a dog for our home environment, and we've been told it's all how you raise them and nothing else matters. And we've been told a dog's natural place is in our home as a pet. We have to recognize that a lot of that is untrue and that we have been conditioned by the pet industry as a very lucrative industry to think that if we just do A, B, C, D, E, F, G, which includes a lot of products and services, that every dog will just be exactly what we want them to be. And we don't think about that whole relationship between an organism and an environment and how critical that is for any species. So then what happens is that we don't provide for them what one of my favorite ethologists use as, uses as a, as a German ethologist named Hans Verbal with a W, who uses for the definition of welfare, integrity of form and function. So I'm made to be this, to perceive things this way, for my senses to pick up on all of this stuff, and then to do this in these conditions, and do this in these conditions. And then most of us get these dogs conditioned to think that they are just pets, and all they want is to chase the ball and go for three 15-minute walks a day, and to have their belly rubbed, and have some yummy kibble, and go to the vet and be healthy, and whatever. And then we got a Malinois or we got a Husky or we got a guardian breed or something that was very much designed to perceive things in a certain way and then to respond to conditions in a certain way. And we don't want those responses and perceptions. We try to train them out, but they're actually like, it's a biological phenomenon. It's in, in many ways, the essence of who that animal is. And therefore for us to have that cohesion, that welfare for them is accepting the dog in front of us first, right? Before we even work with that dog in front of us being like, how can I understand who you are? And that's why I like the legs model is it's like, nothing is totally predictive. Genes aren't going to be predictive. We need to have the L-E-G-S of the learning, the environment, the genetics, and the individual self. 
and understand that all of those things are contributing to what is in front of us. And I think our industries had this kind of bad habit of leaning on that L so hard that we're like, we'll just train at everything. And sometimes we have to say, actually, because it's this G, it's this genetic recipe of an individual, this environment is creating a fundamental pressure and friction for them that's compromising their welfare. And the behavior problems we're having are merely symptoms of that, right? So it, it's a really like totally different way to frame what we're used to thinking of as like dog behavior problems. That's interesting. I think the biggest takeaway that I, I learned when I read your book, Meet Your Dog, and listened to a lot of your podcasts, I started looking a little bit more at sort of an embark sort of approach in what breeds are there, what's the percentages, and not to achieve some confirmation bias, but to be on the lookout for an animal that might be searching for these outlets that might be intrinsic to them. But where I get stumped is, as I'm researching, I also hear that we don't, and this is something I'd like clarification on, we don't yet know exactly what information, important information gets secured and passed down through the genotypes. But in terms of working breeds and considering when I work in behavior modification, 75, 80% of the dogs that I'm working are some way, shape or form a working breed. Mm -hmm. How does that change our understanding or even the certainty that what we're training, artificially selecting and breeding these dogs to do does carry on even as the dog's pure genetics is being mixed in with other breeds? What do we know? So the more that we as a species learn, the more we realize we don't know, right? And the more each of us learns as an individual, the more we realize we really don't know, right? So we're all we're doing the best that we can with the information that we think that we have at any given moment. And it's, again, one of the reasons I love evolution is because it has some of the most consistent principles that have been put to the test for decades by scientists to see whether those kinds of principles hold true. For instance, one of those things is going to be that if something is passed on genetically consistently, so say protective behavior in guardians, like a particular breed of guardians, then if they were naturally selected, that behavior, if it was consistently represented, so the more like universal something is within a lineage or species or throughout nature, whatever the more critical it was to survival from an ethological perspective. Now, when we get into artificial selection, then we are obviously picking that. It's not what was good for the animal and what was like in their best interest that necessarily gets passed on for their survival. It's what we wanted. But in a way, we're exploiting and manipulating that phenomenon by being like, we like it. So this dog demonstrates guarding behavior. This dog demonstrates guarding behavior. We're going to breed these two together. Then they have a litter of puppies and five out of six demonstrates guarding behaviors. Two out of six have really strong guarding behaviors. We're going to find someone else who also has another dog that's similar with very strong guarding behavior. And then we're going to breed them together. So we can keep fast tracking the selective process, if you will, that normally might take nature, a lot more trial and error and, and many more generations to pick all that stuff up. But to answer your question, in part, just the fact that something might be consistently, not 100%, but consistently represented in a breed of dog means that there is from the 
animals experience and also just from a technical perspective, there's a lot of selective pressure for that behavior, right? So we're likely to see it. So in a way, if it gets passed on genetically, again, that consistently, that in itself is enough of an indicator. But nature's so awesome and dynamic that it doesn't just stamp out carbon copies of whatever genetically is working. It's always working with a bell curve of distribution of variation on those traits. And that's why that one out of six of the puppies not protective at all. And then maybe two out of six are like eh, a little protective, but not really. And so it's always creating new opportunities for other things to work. So that's one of the ways that nature provides chances for individuals and species to adapt to changing circumstances. So if being protective was really useful for a certain period of time in a certain population of animals, then there's going to be a lot of selective pressure for that trait. But if all of the sudden being really protective is counterproductive and a more cooperative, collaborative model, maybe with what would have been opposing social groups in a certain territory, suddenly maybe the game is bigger or there's some new species that's emerging that we will be able to defend ourselves against better or be able to prey upon more effectively if we work together, then that diversity that showed up in the offspring, in that litter or whatever, is going to present like a new potential open door. So knowing that, that's why I think it's so important that we have legs because it's you could get a Malinois and the dog won't be protective at all. <laughs> totally possible, right? But chances are, because of the selective pressure, that they will be at least a little, if not super duper protective, right? And so it's that being willing to stay dynamic. And I think that's one of the things our industry could work on a lot in general is being able to use critical thinking to use information to, and then at the same time recognizing that those things, likely as they might be, are never a guarantee. It's never predictable. It's never, oh, I know for sure because it's a model. It's definitely protection. So I think that's where I'd like to see humanity grow up a little bit across the board, whether it's politics or dog training, and be a little bit less rigid about things and a little less tempted into ideological fervor about one thing or another. So for me to talk about genetics is not dog racism, right? That's like an, an example of the extremist of something that has been said throughout my career is if you talk about genes at all, then you're racially profiling dogs, basically, right? And that's no more true than it would be to say that there's going to be differences between a black bear and a porcupine we might expect that there's going to be some likely differences between the two. Yeah, hopefully that answers your question and my long-winded tirade. No, it totally did. Another question, just being greedy because I, I want to understand this better. Where does genetic expression come into all of this? In engaging with a dog where they may have been predisposed to want an outlet and expressing the genetics of that dog, whether it's you are working in Malinois and that puppy and adolescent Malinois and you witness them unfold in front of you and go engage with something as if it's their purpose or you set a livestock guardian breed loose on their territory, their backyard, and you watch them unfold. How exactly does that work when genes express in the ways that they're reinforced or engaged with? Yeah, that's a really good question. So 
In terms of catalyzing, I'm going to talk about it in two, from the front end and the back end. In And I'll try to use this, the thread. The way that nature's very efficient, it's very economical. So one of the things that's really helpful to think about when you're thinking about ethology and evolution is to think about economy. Because in nature, you can't afford to be spending excess energy because you need that energy for survival. So having to learn something the first time using frontal lobe and executive function takes way more energy than going on a habit or instinct. So one of the cool little economical things that nature has done is to create through inheritance. So you can look at the field of neuroethology and you can look at the field of ethology to understand this in a little more detail. Inheritance sets the individual organism up, arms them, so to speak, with understanding the perceptual recognition of certain signals in the environment, because not all the signals matter to every species. Some signals are really important to one species and not at all important to another species. Like the color red for hummingbirds is a really good example. Quick movements along the horizon for a predator, right? So things that might be like really relevant for one, again, not as relevant for another, although certain kinds of quick movements upon the horizon would also be really relevant for prey. But the, those kinds of signals down to the specificity of the shadows cast by a certain kinds of predator birds and whether that's on the radar of a given species or not, those are selected for through that evolutionary process. And that's part of what we selected for with artificial selection. So the genetics in that sense load the gun by giving the individual the already, if you want to think about it as classically conditioned recognition of those signals, but it's generations of classical conditioning, right? If you want to think about it that way. So then once those signals, they're called releasing stimuli or releasers, are perceived by that individual who inherited the recognition of those releasers, then there's a dopamine release for the animal, which acts at that point as a motivator. It says, ooh, do something. And at that point, what the individual does, so that's now into the modal action pattern of what is the appropriate action to take in the presence of this particular context or set of signals, and it catalyzes the animal to engage in that particular behavior. By the way, all of this has so far happened without executive function and decision-making, which really matters when it comes to talk training. And then the animal receives a dopamine hit for engaging in that inherited modal action pattern instinctual behavioral response. So the dopamine acts as a motivator in the face of that releasing catalyst, and then it acts as a reinforcer for engaging in that behavior Regardless of whether we're shelling out cookies or punishment, right? The animal's already reinforced for that behavior. And so this is one of those reasons why I feel like it's so important that anyone that works with behavior understands ethology and evolution and all of these things that are going on because it's criminal to breed perceptions and behaviors into a particular species or line of dogs and then be punishing them for what we bred into them. And there's a whole lot of that going on, right? And then even if we're not punishing them for what we bred into them, we can actually still be doing a disservice by disorienting and confusing them by trying to distract them into other behaviors 
Because think about it like if you are a protective breed, let's use that example, and you're like, oh my gosh, that's a problem. That's totally a threat. And someone's come over here and have some cookies and let's do a little spinny and do some dancing. And you're like, what? No, don't you see that there's this thing over there? I need to step up to that plate and I need to take care of that. You don't understand. And you're like, no, just come over here and do some little tricks for treats. So at that point, now we're into like, how does that then change the dog's perception of us, our social currency? Did they think that we're trying to trick them? Did they think that we're too oblivious to what's going on in the environment that we're not, we don't have any situational awareness. So they shouldn't take advice from us because we don't even know that there's something out there, right? So there's so many ways that even with nothing but the most harmless techniques in the world, we can still be doing harm to an individual learner if we don't regard with reverence these factors and what's going on. And so what you're talking about is instinct. When you say that there is no executive function, you're saying that the dog is acting on impulse and being driven by the motivator, the dopamine, and there are really not a whole lot of thoughts going on upstairs other than relying on instinct. Yeah, in, yeah. in those moments, in that like acute moment, yes. And I'm sure you, as someone who's worked with many working breeds of dogs and dogs with behavior problems, know the kind of glaze that comes over a dog when they're in that zone, so to speak, when they're just so dialed into those perceptions and then the urges that they're feeling, those impulses to engage with things in their environment that way, they're high on it. It's not dissimilar at all to flow psychology or sports psychology in the human world and why those things are so powerful, whether it be like I was thinking just driving home about like sports. And one of the reasons why sports are so reinforcing for people <clears throat> is because it's one of the only modern opportunities we have left to express a lot of once evolutionarily critical behaviors. So if someone isn't, say, in the military or engaging in like recreational boxing or whatever, like to be to have teams and then opponents and be able to behave in a socially condoned aggressive fashion, right? Like those things, they feel good for a reason because those were really important evolutionary suites of behaviors for our species at one point. Now, would it be too, would I go too far to assume that when we're talking about these instincts at the heart, we're talking about predation and avoidance of danger when we talk about those? So in, in ethology, at least if you're following Ray Coppinger's kind of models, which I tend to, you can pretty much break all behaviors down into one of three categories or a combination of those categories of, as you just mentioned, Predation, which includes just foraging. So it might not be a predatory species, but foraging, finding things you need to survive, whether that be territory, mates, food, etc. And then there's hazard avoidance. So dealing with threats to those resources, whether that's your own personal safety, your territory, your social group, your mating partners, your food, whatever. And then there is social and reproductive. And for all organisms, there's some element of all three of those behaviors represented in their behavioral repertoire, their own ethogram that's specific to their species. So yeah, I would say it is exactly that. And then adding in the social and reproductive component. And where do you think, so when we talk about like dogs that 
there's maybe a genetic misfire. Maybe you have a conflict-seeking breed that experiences conflict during adolescence and those genotypes express and it's following suit. Or maybe a dog was attacked at a dog park and you see them reorientate how they operate and perceive the entire environment thereafter. Where do you think that substitution comes into play when we talk about outlets, necessary outlets, whether it be putting a dog in a drive state and allowing them to corral a flirt pole in a high rate of movement and receiving dopamine and then tethering in influence and communication into that? Do you think that at this stage is a way to help dogs that are relying on instinct, more or less to put them into those instinctual states and try to apply communication reinforcement to detour them. Yeah. And I think we also have no idea. I think on the one hand, we have to, because if welfare is integrity of form and function and we are breeding in drives and then we are going to shackle those drives, then we are going to end up with serious frustration, particularly in high drive dogs, right? So finding some type of potentially surrogate if not, if we're not able to provide the exact nail on the head outlet for the expression of those drives is by definition, part and parcel to good welfare. However, there's obviously some Russian roulette with that in that if the animal is experiencing reinforcement for engaging in that behavior, even if it is an appropriate surrogate outlet, it might grease the wheels of turning the animal on to crave more. So we're always walking that line. And this has been one of the hardest things in my whole career, which is like, all right, you're showing up, you're an adolescent guardian breed, and you're showing up with some barking at things that I don't know that they are out there that you smell or hear that I don't know what they are, right? Do I say, good boy, yeah, good boy, good job, yeah, because you feel all some when you do it and that really fills your cup where am I playing with a little bit of fire by possibly reinforcing something when I really want that guy to be a super marshmallow therapy dog and I never wanted him to think anything was a threat we don't know but at the same time if providing good welfare for dogs requires giving them that integrity of form and function then if we're already seeing enough drive that we feel like it's tipping towards potential frustration, I think we have to try. And yet if you have a marshmallow that's never looked like he thinks anything is dangerous or scary at all, why open up that floodgate? Because he might be the anomaly genetically who's never gonna, right? Even if he is a guardian, he was that pup out of the litter. But we don't know. And this is part of the puzzle with dogs, right? Like with zoo animals, it's like we can look at the genotype of that animal, the phenotype of that animal, all of their legs in the captive environment set of conditions. And we can pretty universally see frustration in many slash most of those animals that are in those conditions because as wild species that are domesticated for closer proximity with people, smaller living areas, et cetera, then their risk of frustration is going to be so much higher. But again, this is the weird thing about dogs and a lot of domesticated species. It's like 
where's the gradient of what doesn't matter as much? And it's going to actually, of course, be different with every single individual animal. So it's hard to know. But the modern, the average modern pet home is not doing it for most dogs. And that's the problem, right? If we want pretty universally pet dogs as your average family in the United States or other developed nations that are keeping dogs the way that we do, then I think we need to be breeding for pet dogs instead of thinking, oh, I want me a Malinois because they look super cool and I'm going to do all this stuff. And But I really have no idea what I'm doing. I have no idea what I'm getting into when I'm signing up for. Or the Huskies, right? Everyone thinks, oh, Huskies. Like I was brokenhearted by one of your posts that I saw this morning about all the dogs in California who are slated to be euthanized like in the next few days and like how many of them were huskies shepherds malinois bullies right like a lot of high drive individuals in most cases that are that were more dog than the person knew they were signing up for so then they become difficult to live with not because they're bad dogs not because they aren't obedient but because they're welfare they're not getting to be Huskies or Malinois or bullies. I think you've you struck a chord with me in this conversation because when I hear you talk about legs and I hear you talk about people needing to stop and really observe the dog in front of you, which I want to get into legs and unpack that a little bit because I have a feeling it has a lot to do with assessing the dog and understanding the dog in totality before you move to create any sort of protocol or routine around helping them. But I think that's probably one of the biggest failures in the dog training industry is that everywhere you go, someone's selling a protocol or a way to fix something. And when you look at how most trainers operate, they do not allow the dog the opportunity in assessing and going, okay, based on what I'm seeing, based on these circumstances, this is what I think is going on before I look to build a training plan. We just corral all of the dogs into the same model of devalue the display or the inappropriate behavior with punishment or aversion, reinforce the alternative behaviors to a phenomenal degree where the dog just starts choosing the alternative behaviors. That seems to be, if you were to break down, aside from maybe bat protocols and under threshold work, that seems to be the mode of operation for most behavior mod trainers. Mm-hmm. And so in terms of legs, where do you think this can help? Because I'm, I've got a lot of reactive dog parent clients I've got a lot of dog trainer friends and followers that are so eager to understand a new approach, something that they're missing. Where do you think legs fits in the industry right now with helping to curtail significant behavior? Such a great and super loaded question. So one of the reasons that we in the legs community, in our student community, which is now like 4,000 people in 26 countries, which is just awesome because it's like we're all kind of flexing these muscles and learning how to do this differently together. One of the things that we have as a rule in that community is you can't talk about how, you can't talk about protocols, you can't talk about what your behavior plan is going to be in terms of behavior modification in the group. You could talk about why And you got to get really good at understanding the legs because those are the muscles we're flexing. People can go into any other group and talk about how and their protocols and blah, blah, blah. But it's so critical that we just learn to avoid the temptation of going right to the how because it is effective. And it's regardless of techniques, we can totally change behavior because we've hacked learning. 
So it's, I'm sorry to make anyone feel bad about themselves if they're really patting themselves on the back for being a great trainer today, but it's not that hard to change behavior. You can manipulate behavior so easily once you understand how learning works. But at what potential cost to the animal? And are we just saying, okay, so in this particular context with these antecedent conditions, I have changed the behavior so that when the dog is presented with this stimulus, they do this instead of this. Okay, but whatever's underneath that, is it just going to pop up over here and then pop up over here and then pop up over here? And that happens a lot where the trainers, wow, I fixed it. And then they don't recognize that whatever shows up later is actually a side effect of having gone about it the way that they did because they didn't really get to the heart of it. So the interesting thing about using the legs approach to behavior is when you get good at understanding the legs, you get good at being a detective of details such that you can see what the expression of a behavior as a symptom is pointing to as potential sources. And you get good at finding them, addressing them. And then what's crazy is the behavior just goes away. Oftentimes you don't even have to do any of the training at the particular behavior in the context where it was occurring because you took the pressure out. It's like turning the stove off, right? Instead of being like, all right, I got a boiling pot on the stove and it's really hot and what do I do to prevent it from boiling over? We're not turning the heat down. We're just like sticking metal spoons in there and other things they are cold, maybe popping in some ice to try to bring the temperature down. Oh, good. It stopped boiling over because I put a bunch of ice in it. Great. But how long does it take if the stove is still on before it boils over again? So it's that kind of idea of getting to source instead of symptoms. I love that. I'm a big proponent of this. I've created all, most of my program is designed around systematically assessing the dog. I've got four different helper dogs in my program that all present specific, they present differently through by process of elimination, being able to determine what the dog's issues are, whether it's the social neutral husky that comes out first and, hey, how are you? And she'll keep showing those pro-social cues no matter how crazy the dog is and she'll lay down. And then my bigger golden retriever that doesn't blink and just stares at the dog and doesn't move or my crazy terrier that's bred to bark on cue or my Malinois. By shopping these dogs in a tempered and controlled way, I'm able to start to determine why it might be happening. Mm -hmm. And to further validate your point, one of the easiest things that I think that I fix in dog training is hypersocial behaviors, where a dog is really interested in dogs, places a considerable amount of value in smelling or interacting or playing with dogs. And because their behavior is not conducive enough to actually go towards the dogs and the owner has to eject them from every interaction because of how they're acting, mm -hmm. the process for us is simple. It's, all right, if you want to get to the dog, you just got to do this. Mm -hmm. And then I'll release you to say hi to the dog. I'll install a greeting ritual. You walk alongside me, you sit, and then I release you to say hi to the dog. And by turning the problem into a reward pathway, it's something that can be solved in under a minute or not in under a, a session. Mm -hmm. And- that's just one thing that I've unlocked, but what you're talking about is being able to find an unlock for all the various considerations for the problem and how to work it. So could you unpack a little bit in the acronym and what those different lenses are so that people can know what you're talking about when you mean lens? Yeah. Legs is, it stands for learning environment, genetics, and self. And it's so every animal in nature has what's called a phenotype. Dogs do too. All biological organisms do. 
And so basically what that means is that what goes into the observable behavior that we might be seeing are the genetics that the animal came to to begin with. And then as an individual self who's born into a particular environmental set of conditions, they are then learning and adapting to all of those different experiences as they go. I think one of the things that's really important for us to remember is that in nature that happens organically and the organism has autonomy in that process of learning. Most of our dogs don't have autonomy in the process of learning. They might have autonomy about learning certain things in their environment, but a lot of what they have the opportunity to learn or not is controlled by us. And if you think about that hypersocial dog you were just referring to, if they were like in a, a particular animal in nature, they would learn really quickly based on the natural consequences of what works to get them what they're needing as a young social developing individual long before they become a two-year-old dog that our client calls us about, right? They would have learned at the critical developmental stage specific for that species how to conduct oneself in order to have access to enjoyable and functional social interactions and relationships, right? But when we walk around in the ways that we do on leashes and then maybe like when we take them to daycare, we didn't realize that we've got a bad behavior pattern that's accidentally getting reinforced on a daily basis because we pass the dog off to the staff person at the door who then walks them into the building the dog is lunging and straining and whining and barking as they walk in the door and they keep getting closer to the gate and then are released to play with all of their friends. So the dog is rehearsing this particular pattern of this functional greeting ritual or whatever, right? And those are the kinds of things that are really important for us to be able to take inventory about when we're looking at the environment. Because you dog trainer may come along and be like, okay, client, here's how we fix this behavior. This is what you do. But if we don't say, Let's think real quick if there's any other possible times where this behavior might be getting reinforced that could be undermining the dog understanding what's going to be an effective strategy here. But your point there is really good about that hypersocial dog too, because it's why I'm such a proponent of the premat principle, right? Which is really just nature's learning instead of arbitrary reinforcers and punishers. You figure out from the very applied behavior analysis kind of lens, what's the function of this behavior in this particular situation? And how can I make the right behavior as the ABC, the B of the ABC recipe of antecedent behavior consequence? How can I make the right behavior lead to the outcome the dog wanted in the first place? That's why the behavior was happening in the first place. Whereas dog trainers, honestly, you guys, like we are so bad and just not even figuring out what their original function of the behavior and motivation was, we just throw random reinforcers and punishers. So if that dog wants to go play with that dog and we're like, we'll give you cookies for not, he's cool, but I don't care about the cookies right now. I want to go see that dog. That's what matters. So that's why we have to get better at being observant and well-educated enough to think. So for this, especially if it's a golden retriever, is there a higher than likely average that the motivation is to get to the dog or the person as opposed to if it is a livestock guardian dog, we might think depending on the age, depending on the reproductive status, depending on whether that dog is already rehearsed in their prior environment as a genetic livestock guardian dog, 
guarding against other predators. And here we are standing in our front yard working with a dog trainer, having just rescued this dog from a working farm, and it's pulling towards another dog. We might think that might not be about wanting to go say hi. That might be coming from someplace else. So that's why we got to at least reference the G to help us look at likely explanations, safest bet strategies, and things that are most likely to be successful in our endeavors when we're working with behavior. But yeah, it's complicated. I love that you've got that kind of pre-map lens already on your shoulder. I feel like that could be so game-changing in itself if our industry really understood how to break that down case by case and work with where the dog's actually coming from instead of trying to distract them with other motivations of punishers and reinforcers. Yeah, it's it's considered a big no to even allow dogs to go over threshold in your process. And the mantra, unfortunately, that I hear all the time on social media from dog trainers is, I don't need to see it to fix it. And that's one of the most disheartening statements because therein you were saying, I do the same thing for each dog. And so I think your model legs is supremely important because it's not a protocol. It's a way of assessing. It's a way of starting on home plate before you attempt the home run. And I do not, I cannot think of another program out there that emphasizes the assessment before the solve. It's a, everybody's selling carriages, but no one's selling a horse in the industry. <laughs> yeah, that's a nutshell. <laughs> that's a heck of a nutshell. I think it's because we do get drunk with our power. And I'm just saying to everyone, as someone who is just as easily seduced into that drunken state, right? Being like, dang, look what I just got that dog to do. Woo, that's awesome. That's so cool. Check yourself. Check yourself when you get that rush of look what I just did. And just make sure what you're doing is actually taking all the things into consideration for the dog's interest, right? They shouldn't just be our puppets and our court jesters. It's not fair. It's exploitive. And in, in a way, if we're doing that, what are we doing? Like, it could be super cool and you have tons of likes and follows on social media and whatever, and you sold your protocol and blah, 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 because it works really well and it can work really well and still not fundamentally serve a dog's welfare, right? So yeah, we've. I think we have to get good at that if we're worth our salt. Or even in its most efficient form, create less dog at the end of it and not more dog. Because a lot of the things, like going back to those three categories of behavior, if you do, I've done this in a number of webinars and in the course on stuff, if you do a breakdown of all the common behavior problems that we get presented with, the vast majority of them are just natural behaviors that fall into one of those three categories of behavior of hazard avoidance, social reproductive, or foraging. And we're like, that's bad, bad dog, bad foraging dog that's looking for stuff. I have this stuff for you. You don't have to look for it, so you don't need to forage. And I don't want you to be exhibiting any hazard avoidance behavior because that's very annoying. I want you to love everybody and everything and tolerate it all. And then I also definitely don't want you exhibiting reproductive behaviors. That's just disgusting. And social behaviors only in a highly designated controlled situation that I decide so you don't even get to pick your own friends. Like when you really break it down, we got to step back, right? And be like, how can we open up these doors of opportunities instead of just shut them down? 
you got to wonder <laughs> if the dogs uh, were in a better place when they were in the backyard having a ball in their early 80s and 90s. I look at my life in Atlanta in the 80s and like the dogs being loose and sure, okay, this is what applied ethology is all about. It's trade-offs. They'd be more likely to get hit by cars, right? More likely to get stolen by somebody. More likely to get in a fight. More likely to eat someone's garbage and get an obstruction because they ate a chicken bone and end up at the vet hospital. But they had a life. It's like we're doing to dogs what Richard Louvre, the psychologist, talks about in his book, Last Child in the Woods, Saving Our Children from Nature Deficit Disorder. We're doing what we've done to our kids. We're trying to raise them in a bubble. Don't climb trees. Don't run, you might fall. Don't jump off the rocks into the lake. Don't whatever. Don't do anything where there's any potential risk because you should be in a bubble so that everyone's nice and safe. But what is the point of safety if there's no welfare? question for you around legs. Is it for dog owners that might be struggling with behavioral issues or is it centered for dog trainers? Who's your audience? So the whole legs course is, so the book, Me, Your Dog, is literally for anybody. And so I really tried to write it so that it was accessible and digestible for literally anybody. That's some place where a lot of people might choose to start. For pros, any kind of dog pro or aspiring dog pro, like you're thinking about going into the industry, whether to be a trainer or a vet or a groomer or a daycare owner or dog walker, pet sitter, whatever, um, I think should be like required education. Of course, I'm biased because I love ethology, but I also can't really see doing anything working with animals without understanding it, right? And yet it's also not something that's so over, it's not over anyone's head to where it wouldn't be accessible for just a really committed, super nerdy, or just super passionate, curious dog family. So we have a lot of people in our community that actually had a difficult dog, found the legs course, came in as just an owner, and now not only feel like they have a way better relationship with their dog and understand their dog, but now they are a certified family dog mediator who is starting to help out in their own communities in various capacities, whether it just be like one of my clients um, has uh, created like a three acre fenced or one of my students, three acre fenced area on her property just to give dogs the nature therapy opportunities that they don't have where she lives otherwise to autonomously follow their flow and follow those instincts in those conditions and play with some other dogs and stuff like that. A lot of people might turn it into a career or a second career, or they just find that it really, again, helps them with their own understanding of what's going on. The biggest consistent comment that we get from students is that it was just like one light bulb moment after another. Just that's why, right? Like all these things just clicking. And then what each of us does with that is going to be different, but it is magical. That's the cool thing about it is it fills in a lot of blanks and connects the dots. Whereas a lot of the narratives, both in the industry and then just in, in the pet world as a marketplace can be misleading. Right. As I'm listening to my livestock guardian puppy, who's only five months old, barking over the hill at what's surely a bear or fox or something like that being exactly what she's designed to be, right? So if I was like, why does she do that sometimes? She doesn't bark the rest of the time because she's not an excessive barker. So why does sometimes she go on and on for an hour yelling at something that's clearly not there, right? Because she can smell the air coming up from the hollow down there. And there's something down there today. I don't know what it is and I'm not going to go down there and find out. But 
I know that those are her instincts being quickened. So that's fantastic. What do you think about, and what do you think? Cause I've noticed as a dog trainer, I had a couple of German shepherd videos go viral and it served as a lead generator. And all I've touched were German shepherds for seven months, literally every phone call, every email. And in that I got really good at reading German shepherds and being a little bit more intuitive and being able to go a little bit faster in the process and, and the sessions with German shepherds and found that I was stifled very quickly when I stood in front of a bull terrier, mm-hmm. not being able to same read, not being able to have the same observations, not being able to influence uh, so readily. Mm-hmm. What do you think understanding specific breeds down to your ability to read them, observe them and influence them comes into play in dog training? Yeah, no, that's another really good question. I think finding, so like knowing the genetics can also tell you what is likely to turn a dog on, right? So like for a German Shepherd, there's a lot of selective pressure historically to work with a person and even like reinforcement for them that they experience on that dopamine level for paying attention to us, following instructions, getting advice, right? Because that we had to select for that if we wanted good herding dogs historically. You couldn't have a herding dog deciding, you know what, I'm going to take these sheep over here and I'm going to run them off the mountain or take them to the neighbor's house. So just being able to herd wasn't what we just needed in herding dogs. We needed it to be very dialed back into our communication and relationship. Bull terriers, not so much, (laughs) right? So then we've got the terrier independent hunters, And the bulls, who are descendants of the guardians, so the bulls actually have a little more wiring for attentiveness towards people, but not necessarily, but they might have been used in kind of some various partner functions and things like that historically. But the job that they were doing in terms of defending being largely in a kind of independent task, and definitely with terriers, I don't need the human to help me hunt the terrier, the varmint. Thank you very much. Right. So I can do that completely on my own. And we wanted a dog with perseverance and drive and grit, regardless of obstacles. And so here we are as a dog trainer, maybe doing a body block or something. It would work with a German shepherd if we just do a quick little supplant, do a little go between. German shepherd feels the tiniest bit of pressure and they're like, oh, and they step back and notice that you're in their body physical space and sit and look at you. And the bull terrier is like, get out of my way. <laughs> right? They're going, trying to go through your legs, maybe chewing on your legs to try to get around you to get to whatever it is. So that's why I love legs is because <laughs> you can frame what you're seeing and you can understand it. And then you're like, okay, so I need some pre-mac for that bull terrier. I need to figure out how to help him understand that if you simply apply this little filter criteria, then you can get where you're going and the obstacle gets out of your way. Right. But you're laughing because I've had these experiences. Fast forward to the trainer in 2023, looking at the owner and going, this animal's prone to redirection. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. I wonder why that is. You are, I, you've inspired me to research as much as I can around breeds. I am all over Wikipedia and going, what breeds were put into this breed to make this breed? Oh yeah. And you're just, I really do think you're hitting the nail on the head in the industry. I really do. And then I want to thank you for 20 years of talking to a wall before everyone woke up and realized that one, yes, science is important. And two, it's not just a bumper slogan. There's a body out there that can help you see the bigger picture. And if you could really quickly 
Can you tell people where to find the Legs course, dog owners that really want to understand and learn a little bit more about what's going on in their home and even aspiring dog trainers to join this 4,000 strong community? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So they can go to familydogmediation.com and there's a pro page and there's a families page and they can see all the, from the main course there, the Legs Applied Ethology Family Dog Mediation course, as well as the Dog's Truth, which is a one hour boiled down documentary style nutshell of the whole course meant for kind of a first super digestive introduction for families. So the whole range We've got a bunch of deep dives from water. We've got two years now of our conference under our belt. We're starting to post the deep dives from this year's conference. And so those will be up there as well. And folks can get in touch with me through that as well. And they can find me on Facebook too. And I was actually going to let your followers know that we have made a 50% off for all products on the website coupon for your followers with code Optima. Oh my gosh, that's so amazing. I'll yeah. be sure to put that on the link. Uh, my community has been chomping at the bits. I let them know that I was going to talk to you and they're literally like, is it happening? Is it happening? But you have a lot of fans out there. I appreciate the conversation. I really do. I'm super inspired. And thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me today. Yeah. Thank you again so much for having me. It's been great. Yeah. All right.